Section 36 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen. Second part of Chapter 14 the higher learning as an expression of the pecuniary culture. It may not be entirely beside the point to note that in point of time this curious reversion seems to coincide with the culmination of a certain vogue of atavistic sentiment and tradition in other directions also. The wave of reversion seems to have received its initial impulse in the psychologically disintegrating effects of the civil war. Habituation to war entails a body of predatory habits of thought, whereby clannishness in some measure replaces the sense of solidarity and a sense of invidious distinction supplants the impulse to equitable everyday serviceability as an outcome of the cumulative action of these factors the generation which follows a season of war is apt to witness a rehabilitation of the element of status both in its social life and in its scheme of devout observances and other symbolic or ceremonial forms throughout the eighties and less plainly traceable through the seventies also there was perceptible a gradually advancing wave of sentiment favoring quasi-predatory business habits insistence on status anthropomorphism and conservatism generally the more direct and unmediated of these expressions of the barbarian temperament such as the recrudescence of outlawry and the spectacular quasi-predatory careers of fraud run by certain captains of industry came to a head earlier and were appreciably on the decline by the close of the seventies the recrudescence of anthropomorphic sentiment also seems to have passed its most acute stage before the close of the eighties but the learned ritual and paraphernalia here spoken of are a still remoter and more recondite expression of the barbarian animistic sense and these therefore gained vogue and elaboration more slowly and reached their most effective development at a still later date there is reason to believe that the culmination is now already past, except for the new impetus given by a new war experience, and except for the support which the growth of a wealthy class affords to all ritual, and especially to whatever ceremonial is wasteful and pointedly suggests gradations of status, it is probable that the late improvements and augmentation of scholastic insignia and ceremonial would gradually decline. But while it may be true that the cap and gown, and the more strenuous observance of scholastic proprieties which came with them were floated in on this post-bellum tidal wave of reversion to barbarism it is also no doubt true that such a ritualistic reversion could not have been effected in the college scheme of life until the accumulation of wealth in the hands of a property class had gone far enough to afford the requisite pecuniary ground for a movement which should bring the colleges of the country up to the leisure class requirements in the higher learning the adoption of the cap and gown is one of the striking atavistic features of modern college life and at the same time it marks the fact that these colleges have definitely become leisure class establishments either in actual achievement or in aspiration as further evidence of the close relation between the educational system and the cultural standards of the community it may be remarked that there is some tendency latterly to substitute the captain of industry in place of the priest as the head of seminaries of the higher learning the substitution is by no means complete or unequivocal those heads of institutions are best accepted who combine the sacerdotal office with a high degree of pecuniary efficiency 
there is a similar but less pronounced tendency to entrust the work of instruction in the higher learning to men of some pecuniary qualification administrative ability and skill in advertising the enterprise count for rather more than they once did as qualifications for the work of teaching this applies especially in those sciences that have most to do with the everyday facts of life and it is particularly true of schools in the economically single-minded communities this partial substitution of pecuniary for sacerdotal efficiency is a concomitant of the modern transition from conspicuous leisure to conspicuous consumption as the chief means of reputability the correlation of the two facts is probably clear without further elaboration the attitude of the schools and of the learned class towards the education of women serves to show in what manner and to what extent learning has departed from its ancient station of priestly and leisure class prerogatives and it indicates also what approach has been made by the truly learned to the modern economic or industrial matter-of-fact standpoint the higher schools and the learned professions were until recently taboo to the women these establishments were from the outset and have in great measure continued to be devoted to the education of the priestly and leisure classes the women as has been shown elsewhere were the original subservient class and to some extent especially so far as regards their nominal or ceremonial position they have remained in that relation down to the present there has prevailed a strong sense that the admission of women to the privileges of the higher learning as to the illusionian mysteries would be derogatory to the dignity of the learned craft it is therefore only very recently and almost solely in the industrially most advanced communities that the higher grades of schools have been freely opened to women and even under the urgent circumstances prevailing in the modern industrial communities the highest and most reputable universities show an extreme reluctance in making the move the sense of class-worthiness that is to say of status of an honorific differentiation of the sexes according to a distinction between superior and inferior intellectual dignity survives in a vigorous form in these corporations of the aristocracy of learning it is felt that the woman should in all propriety acquire only such knowledge as may be classed under one or the other of two heads one such knowledge as conduces immediately to a better performance of domestic service the domestic sphere two such accomplishments and dexterity quasi scholarly and quasi artistic as plainly come in under the head of a performance of vicarious leisure knowledge is felt to be unfeminine if it is knowledge which expresses the unfolding of the learner's own life the acquisition of which proceeds on the learner's own cognitive interest without prompting from the canons of propriety and without reference back to a master whose comfort or good repute is to be enhanced by the employment or the exhibition of it so also all knowledge which is useful as evidence of leisure other than vicarious leisure is scarcely feminine for an appreciation of the relation which these higher seminaries of learning bear to the economic life of the community the phenomena which have been reviewed are of importance rather as indications of a general attitude than as being in themselves facts of first-rate economic consequence they go to show what is the instinctive attitude and animus of the learned class towards the life process of an industrial community they serve as an exponent of the stage of development for the industrial purpose attained by the higher learning and by the learned class and so they afford an indication as to what may fairly be looked for from this class at points where the learning and the life of the class 
bear more immediately upon the economic life and efficiency of the community and upon the adjustment of its scheme of life to the requirements of the time what these ritualistic survivals go to indicate is a prevalence of conservatism if not of reactionary sentiment especially among the higher schools where the conventional learning is cultivated to these indications of a conservative attitude is to be added another characteristic which goes in the same direction but which is a symptom of graver consequence than this playful inclination to trivialities of form and ritual by far the greater number of american colleges and universities for instance are affiliated to some religious denomination and are somewhat given to devout observances their putative familiarity with scientific methods and the scientific point of view should presumably exempt the faculties of these schools from animistic habits of thought but there is still a considerable proportion of them who profess an attachment to the anthropomorphic beliefs and observances of an earlier culture these professions of devotional zeal are no doubt to a good extent expedient and perfunctory both on the part of the schools in their corporate capacity and on the part of the individual members of the corps of instructors but it cannot be doubted that there is after all a very appreciable element of anthropomorphic sentiment present in the higher schools so far as this is the case it must be set down as the expression of an archaic animistic habit of mind this habit of mind must necessarily assert itself to some extent in the instruction offered and to this extent its influence in shaping the habits of thought of the student makes for conservatism and reversion it acts to hinder his development in the direction of matter-of-fact knowledge such as best serves the ends of industry the college sports which have so great a vogue in the reputable seminaries of learning to-day tend in a similar direction and indeed sports have much in common with the devout attitude of the colleges both as regards their psychological basis and as regards their disciplinary effect but this expression of the barbarian temperament is to be credited primarily to the body of students rather than to the temper of the schools as such except in so far as the college or the college officials as sometimes happens actively countenance and foster the growth of sports the like is true of college fraternities as of college sports but with a difference the latter are chiefly an expression of the predatory impulse simply the former are more specifically an expression of that heritage of clannishness which is so large a feature in the temperament of the predatory barbarian it is also noticeable that a close relation subsists between the fraternities and the sporting activity of the schools after what has already been said in an earlier chapter on the sporting and gambling habit it is scarcely necessary further to discuss the economic value of this training in sports and in factional organization and activity but all these features of the scheme of life of the learned class and of the establishments dedicated to the conservation of the higher learning are in a great measure incidental only they are scarcely to be accounted organic elements of the professed work of research and instruction for the ostensible pursuit of which the school exists but these symptomatic indications go to establish a presumption as to the character of the work performed as seen from the economic point of view and as to the bent which the serious work carried on under their auspices gives to the youth who resort to the schools the presumption raised by the considerations already offered is that in their work also as well as in their ceremonial the higher schools may be expected to take a conservative position but this presumption must be checked by a comparison of the economic character of the work actually performed 
and by something of a survey of the learning whose conservation is entrusted to the higher schools. On this head, it is well known that the accredited seminaries of learning have, until a recent date, held a conservative position. They have taken an attitude of depreciation towards all innovations. As a general rule, a new point of view or a new formulation of knowledge have been countenanced and taken up within the schools only after these new things have made their way outside of the schools. As exceptions from this rule are chiefly to be mentioned innovations of an inconspicuous kind and departures which do not bear in any tangible way upon the conventional point of view or upon the conventional scheme of life, as, for instance, details of fact in the mathematico-physical sciences and new readings and interpretations of the classics, especially such as have a philological or literary bearing only. Except within the domain of the humanities, in the narrow sense, and except so far as the traditional point of view of the humanities has been left intact by the innovators, it has generally held true that the accredited learned class and the seminaries of the higher learning have looked askance at all innovation. New views, new departures in scientific theory, especially in new departures which touch the theory of human relations at any point, have found a place in the scheme of the university tardily and by a reluctant tolerance, rather than by a cordial welcome. And the men who have occupied themselves with such efforts to widen the scope of human knowledge have not commonly been well received by their learned contemporaries. The higher schools have not commonly given their countenance to a serious advance in the methods or the content of knowledge until the innovations have outlived their youth and much of their usefulness, after they have become commonplaces of the intellectual furniture of a new generation which has grown up under and has had its habits of thought shaped by the new extra-scholastic body of knowledge and the new standpoint. This is true of the recent past. How far it may be true of the immediate present, it would be hazardous to say, for it is impossible to see present-day facts in such perspective as to get a fair conception of their relative proportions. So far nothing has been said of the Messina's function of the well-to-do, which is habitually dwelt on at some length by writers and speakers who treat of the development of culture and of social structure. This leisure-class function is not without an important bearing on the higher and on the spread of knowledge and culture. The manner and the degree in which the class furthers learning through patronage of this kind is sufficiently familiar. It has been frequently presented in affectionate and effective terms by spokesmen whose familiarity with the topic fits them to bring home to their hearers the profound significance of this cultural factor. These spokesmen, however, have presented the matter from the point of view of the cultural interest, or of the interest of reputability, rather than from that of the economic interest. As apprehended from the economic point of view, and valued for the purpose of industrial serviceability, this function of the well-to-do, as well as the intellectual attitude of members of the well-to-do class, merits some attention, and will bear illustration. End of second part of chapter 14